into himself at last eternity changes him the poet with a naked sword provokes his century appalled to not have known death triumphed in that strange voice they like an upstart hydra hearing the angel once purify the meaning of tribal words proclaimed out loud the prophecy drunk without honor in the tide of some black mixture from soil and hostile cloud what strife if our idea fails to sculpt a best relief, to ornament the dazzling tomb of Poe. Calm block fallen down here from an unseen disaster, let this granite at least set for all time a limit to the black flights of blasphemy scattered in the future. Stéphane Mellarmé, The Tomb of Edgar Poe. Saul's transformation begins, quote, Saul stayed on to the bitter end at the village bar, not sure if it was because he wanted to test Brad's resolve or because he didn't want to walk outside only to re-encounter Henry, or because he was sad Charlie'd had to leave. So he knocked back a couple more beers, put down the way the room swayed to the booze, and ordered some oysters and fish and chips. He had a hunger in him that was rare. Food didn't interest him that much, but tonight he felt ravenous. The oysters were served in their own salt water, newly shucked and steamed, and he didn't bother dipping them in sauce but just gulped them down. Then he tore into the fish, which came away in thick flakes in his hands, the heat rising along with the saliva-inducing smell of the grease. The wedge fries he drowned in ketchup and they soon joined the fish. He was frantic at his feast, aware he was gobbling, stuffing his face, his hands moving at a frenzied, unnatural pace, but he couldn't stop. He ordered another fish and chips, he ordered another round of oysters, another beer. After the last set, the musicians stuck around, but most of the others left, including Trudy. The black sea and sky outside the window peered in against the glass. Smudged faces and the bottles of booze behind the bar reflected back at Saul. Now that it was just old Jim at the piano, with the other musicians goofing around, and so few people he could just about hear the pulse of the sea again, could recognize it as a subtle message in the background. Or something was pulsating in his head. His sense of smell had intensified. The rotting sweetness that must be coming from the kitchen was like a perfume being sprayed in clouds throughout the room. A stitching beat beneath the striking of the piano keys twinned itself to the pulse. Mundane details struck him as momentous. The worm of gray-white ash curling out of an ashtray on the table next to him. The individual flakes still fluming, fluttering, and at the buried core a pinprick of throbbing red that pulsed at him like a brake light. Beside the ash... The smudge of an old greasy thumbprint, immortalized by the gunk that had collected on the ashtray from hundreds of cigarette immolations. Beside the thumbprint, an attempt to etch something into the side of the ashtray, an effort that had ended after J and A. The piano playing became discordant, or was he just hearing it better, or worse? On his stool against the wall, beer in hand, 
He contemplated that. Contemplated the way people's voices were getting confused, as if they'd become mixed up, and the thrum rising under his skin, the thrum and hum and the ringing in his ears. It felt like something was coming toward him from very far away. Toward and into him. His throat was dry and chalky. His beer tasted funny. He put it down, looked around the room. Old Jim couldn't stop playing the piano, although he did it so badly. Fingers too hard against the keys. The keys smudged with his red blood as he now began to roar out a song Saul had never heard before, with lyrics that were incomprehensible. The other musicians, most of them seated around old Jim, let their instruments fall from slack hands and stared at one another as if shocked by something. What were they shocked by? Sadie was weeping and Brad was saying, Why would you do that? Why in the hell would you be doing that? But Brad's voice was coming out of Sadie's body, and blood was dripping out of Brad's left ear, and the people slumped at the bar proper. Had they been slumped that way a moment before? Were they drunk or dead? Old Jim erupted out of his seat to stand, still playing. He was reaching a chaotic crescendo on his shouting, shrieking, yowling song. His fingers destroyed joint by joint, his blood smashed out from the piano onto his lap and down onto the floor. Something was hovering above Saul. Something was emanating out of him, was broadcasting through him, on frequencies too high to hear. What are you doing to me? Why are you staring at me? Stop doing that. I'm not doing anything. Someone was crawling across the floor, or pulling themselves across the floor because their legs didn't work. Someone was bashing their head against the dark glass near the front door. Sadie spun and twitched and twisted on the floor, slamming into chairs and table legs, beginning to come to pieces. Outside, utter night reigned. There was no light. There was no light. Saul got up. Saul walked to the door, the spray of old Jim's incomprehensible song less a roar than a trickling scream. What lay beyond the door he did not know, mistrusted the utter darkness as much as what lay behind him, but he could not stay there in the bar, whether it was all real or something he was hallucinating. He had to leave. He turned the knob, went out into the cooling nighttime air of the parking lot. Everything was in its rightful place, as normal as it could be, with no one in sight. But everything behind him, in there, was awry, wrong, too irrevocable to be fixed by anyone. The din had become worse, and now others were screaming, too, making sounds not capable of being made by human mouths. He managed to find his pickup truck. He managed to get his key in the ignition, put it in reverse, and drive out of the parking lot. The sanctuary of the lighthouse was only half a mile away. He did not look in his rearview mirror, did not want to see anything that might spill out into the night. The stars were so distant and yet so close in the dark sky above. End quote. Kane, sitting on his hospital bed in his isolation tent, stares at Lena. Immediate reverse. Lena, looking right back. In the script, there's a notable pause here. Interior, Southern Reach facility slash ward room, continuous. Lena enters, closes the door behind her. Kane looks round, and they lock eyes. Neither speak. After a moment, Lena goes to the window, looks out at the night sky. Lena, are you Kane? Silence. Then Kane gives a slight shake of the head. Kane, I don't know. Beat. Kane, continued, are you Lena? Lena hesitates then turns to face him. She sat for a long time in silence, with bewilderment upon her heart, because as her eyes searched his face, she thought him one moment like Odysseus, and then again could not see him so because of his miserable rags. 
the film. Lena, you aren't Kane. Are you? Reverse. Kane. Beats pass. Kane. I don't think so. Reverse. Lena. She nods slightly. Then she looks down, takes a breath. Reverse. Kane. Kane. Continued. Are you Lena? Lena? Reverse. Lena. She raises her head, but not all the way. Beat. Then she looks up, makes eye contact, takes a breath. From the third Southern Reach novel, Acceptance, the biologist's last will and testament continued. Quote, Soon enough the island became a shadow or smudge on the seaward horizon, so I knew it was only a matter of days, even if I had trouble telling how much time was passing. The island that was as blank to me now as my husband had been upon his return. I knew nothing of what I might encounter there, and the reality of this sobered me, made me monitor the brightness more closely, fight it harder, as if, ridiculously, by the time I made it across, I had to be at my best, my most alert. For what? For a corpse I might find if I were lucky? For some memory of a life back in the world that we can now misremember as more placid and comfortable than it had been? I don't know the answer to those questions, except that an organism's primary directive is to continue to exist, to breathe and to eat and to shit and to sleep and to fuck and to otherwise carry on with the joyous repetitions of its days. I secured my backpack, and I dove into the water. Anyone reading who likes stories about characters huddled around guttering fires with the wolves waiting just beyond will be disappointed to learn that I was not attacked by leviathans from the depths as I swam over to the island. That, although tired and cold, I easily set up living quarters in the ruined lighthouse waiting on the shore. That I found enough food there, over time, by catching fish and foraging for berries, digging up tubers that, while bland, were edible. I trapped small animals when I had to, planted my own garden using seeds from the fruit I found, fertilized it with homemade compost. At first, the lighthouse perplexed me more than anything on the island. It kept striking me as a mirror of the lighthouse on the coast, the way the light glanced off of it, and that seemed to me like some kind of obscure and potentially ruthless joke. It could be just another detail in a host of them that brought me no closer to answers about Area X, or this confluence, this incomplete synonym, the top caved in and the landing I chose as my stronghold languishing under a trough of wet, dead leaves. It could be an unmistakable and massive indicator of some kind. I took my time, later, exploring the lighthouse, the buildings nearby, the abandoned town, with a systematic and scientific thoroughness, but I felt that my first reconnaissance should be broader, to scour the island for threats, for food and water sources, for any sign of other human life, not wanting to hope for I had found no evidence of recent occupation of the lighthouse, which seemed the most likely shelter because most of the other buildings were, even at first glance, dilapidated, and rotted with astonishing swiftness once Area X had imposed its will on this place. There were also signs of pollution, of old scars, but faded so fast into the firmament that I could not gauge how long ago they had been inflicted, whether Area X was accelerating the erasure of their effects. This island is about 14 miles long, 6 broad, and 40 in circumference, containing what I would estimate as about 84 square miles, or more than 50,000 acres. The pine and oak forest comprises most of the interior, sprawling down toward the shore on the landward side, but the side facing the sea has been assaulted by storms, and there you will find mostly scrub and moss and gnarled bushes. Fresh spring water occurs more frequently than I had expected, from rivulets meandering down from the hills toward the shore. This probably explains the placement of the abandoned town, along with protections from storms blowing in from the sea. But I also found one faucet on the lighthouse grounds that, although spewing forth brown rust at first, 
eventually settled down to a trickle of something brackish but drinkable from some hidden aquifer. Farther afield, I found a rich ecosystem in which a wary rabbit population was held in check by raptors and island foxes, these latter the scrappy small sort that suggested an isolated initial breeding pair or pairs that adapted to the limited range and opportunities of their surroundings. The bird life was robust as well, from tree swallows and purple martins to vireos and wrens, woodpeckers and nighthawks, along with too many types of shorebirds to catalog. At dusk, the sound of avian life triumphant forms a mighty bursting chorus of voices, such a contrast with the silence of the marshes, whose own richness is more muted, almost watchful. I wandered the island for many days, both its perimeter and the interior, getting a feel for it and what it contained. As I recorded my observations, I cursed the southern reach for not providing us with a map, even if I also knew that I would have tested any map provided to me and wound up doing almost as much work. Not just because I distrusted the southern reach, but also because I distrusted Area X. Yet when I was done with this initial inspection, I could not say there was anything preternatural or unusual about the island itself. Other, perhaps, than the owl. End quote. Second 35, two shot through the plastic of the isolation tent. Left of center, Kane, still sitting. Right of center, Lena, standing. Beyond her, she is reflected in the mirror above the sink on the other side of the tent. Kane stands. Camera dollies back and the window frame comes into view on the left. Except, if we were looking through the same glass we've seen before, this should be tinted blue. Kane steps toward Lena, getting closer to her as their space in the frame shrinks. The door handle comes into view. This is the door. The glass panel to the left now is tinted blue. From inside, checking earlier minutes, the door glass was tinted just like the rest. But while the room where Lena woke in minute 12, the room where Lomax has been questioning her off and on throughout the film, and this one are presumably the very same room in behind-the-scenes terms. Any differences could be chalked up to them being separate rooms within the context of the story. That this glass is not blue is not, strictly speaking, a continuity error, but looking at the film in one-minute chunks, it is a minor distraction. Kane and Lena stand very close. Then, abruptly, Kane leans in and wraps his arms around her. She raises her arms and puts them around him. Camera trucks left past the doorframe, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. Annihilation. 